is straight to the source. Your destination for food, views and big ideas. Brought to you by two of the best in the business, Tonya Barr and Lucy Allon. Join them to discover some of Australia's most dynamic food, hospitality and agribusiness leaders. People driven by passion who think outside the box and are positively influencing the food landscape. So, let's get straight to the source with Tonya and Lucy. Hello and welcome to Food, Views and Big Ideas. I'm Tonya Barr. And I'm Lucy Allen. And this is the podcast from us here at Straight to the Source. In this podcast, we will be introducing you to the people who are driving our food and hospitality industry forward whether it be on the land, in the water, in the kitchen, or from the boardroom. Each of our guests are playing a significant role in the evolution of Australia's food identity and culture, and we want you to know who they are, their views, and their big ideas. Hello, and welcome to Straight to the Source. We're coming to you today from Camaragal land, and we'd like to begin by paying our respects to Elders past, present, and emerging. And we extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. We are so excited to be chatting to our friend, the amazing Alice Zaslavsky. Alice is a cook, writer. She's a vigilante. We love that. She's the host of ABC Radio Sunday Drive, the resident culinary correspondent on ABC News Breakfast, a prolific recipe writer, cookbook author, a teacher and educator. Um, Instagram is where you'll find her. It's her happy place. And last but not least, she's a wife and a mother. Alice, welcome. It is so great to have you in the studio with us today. It is very great to be had. Uh, Thank you, Lucy, and thank you, Tonya, for inviting me. So Tonya and I, we've known you for quite some time now. You've been on our Straight to the Source tours in the past, and we've absolutely loved watching your career and the passion that you bring to encouraging people of all ages, whether they're eight or 80 to just enjoy cooking and eating it's it's really infectious the, the the passion you bring to to what you do I mean given everything that we've rolled off on your roll call of what you do the first question we have is how on earth do you do it all and stay sane <laughs> how do you know I'm sane <laughs> Good, yeah well yeah, let's start there <laughs> I would say the the way that I get it done is like the way that you eat an elephant. So, you know, I take each day as it comes and I take each task as it comes. So um, I've got deadlines coming out of my wazoo and I definitely have an overcommitment problem that I'm working through. But it, the problem is that I get FOMO really bad. And when somebody says to me, hey, do you want to do this really cool thing? It's very difficult for me to say no. Surprisingly, you know, what might surprise you to know that I do say no a lot. So just to kind of give you a sense of my inbox, well, you can only imagine my, I mean, how long did it take me to get back to you? That's kind of, (laughs) it's like, it's a, it's a, um, what would I say? I wear at four to five hats a day and I wouldn't have it any other way. I actually thrive in a state of organized chaos. And I think that that's kind of my gift, I suppose. My special source is that I wear lots of, you know, frames. <laughs> but, but wouldn't you say that's in your DNA? I, yes! I dare imagine you've been like that. I can I can imagine you in kindergarten being the same sort of, you know, having having lots on the go, being out yes. the playground, being in the class, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I would say that it's the way that I've always been. And I, I think I'm actually much more steady than I've ever been. I've found 
the best way to stay sane, to answer the question directly, is to be a little bit more intentional about having days of rest. Mm -hmm. And I've stopped trying to create staycation opportunities or give myself multiple days in a row, you know, where I commit in a, you know, a month in advance to a holiday. Well, that's not going to happen. It's more like I look at my day and I say, okay, between two and four, I'm going to actively rest. And whether that means reading a book or setting my all of my screens aside and just spending conscious, mindful time with my family, it just completely re-energizes and reinvigorates. And the other thing that keeps me energized are people. I'm absolutely an extrovert by nature. And so just like Captain Planet needs the sun, I need my time with people. And I actually feel more buzzed at the end of a day having been on stage, having been on on the mic, um, having connected with people on socials and just, you know, having interpersonal conversations with people across a, you know, a couple of cups of coffee. It's just the way I am and I'm I'm very grateful to be that way and to have found all of these various roles, a portfolio career that facilitates that level of organised chaos. <laughs> so... Taking a step back, you trained as a teacher. That was that was what you were doing before you sort of stepped into your current role wearing many, many hats, but all really related to food. Um, who taught you to love food? Who taught you to cook? Where where does where does that where does that love of food come from? I was born loving food. I, no one had to teach me to love food. I come from a long line of foodies, people that talk about what we're going to have for lunch while we're having breakfast. And, um, you know, I, I don't think the word foodie should be a dirty word and I don't think it should be an elitist word. I grew up in the Soviet Union where food was very scarce um, most of the time, but we grew our own. My parents would save up to buy you know, what they could find on the black market sometimes because that's just what it was in, in Georgia. But Georgia is also a place where food is very much um, cultural. You come in and it's that same kind of, you know, question, have you eaten? <laughs> we're hosts, we're natural hosts. So I did go through a patch when I was in kindergarten where the food that I was served at kindergarten I found very difficult to keep down. And that could have been a real moment that affected the rest of my life in terms of if, if they had forced me to eat that food that I obviously wasn't agreeing with me, I think that I would have a lot more baggage than I do. But instead, my mum would come and get me at the, after lunchtime, after I'd regurgitated the, the slops, the, the gruel that we were fed, and she'd take me to her office and she'd feed me a risole sandwich that she sort of knew that she'd have to prepare and there was no judgment, there was no shame, there was no expectation. And I really think that she saved me in that moment from, you know, some serious work that I would have had to go through <laughs> to unpick that stuff. Do you remember the first dish that you actually cooked yourself? I was always helping with things like um, Georgian passata is called um, satsibella. So we used to make satsibella at home and, you know, um, through the hand cranker and I used to help with that even when I was a toddler uh, or I'd help with making the dumplings or with hachapuri, which is our Georgian cheese pie. But the first dish that I would have cooked for um, that I really kind of remember myself actively being trusted with was watching the eggplants, which were charring in the pan and making sure they didn't burn. And that was for my dad. And funnily enough, even now for family feasts, so that's the only job that he used to entrust me 
to for a long time, even after even after I was working in food, he would still kind of think that, you know, well, I think it's hard for your parents to see you as, an, as a grown-up, I think. <laughs> he still sees that eight-year-old. So your experience of that you just referenced in kindergarten, is do you think that is what brought you on this journey to then really educating people about food and all the amazing work that you've done in the phenomenon space, mm. which is really about culinary literacy, but really introducing children at a very young age to food and that understanding? I think it certainly contributed. And I think for a lot of people, our wounds, are, you know, that healing is part of our kind of, you know, no mud, no lotus. So the fact that I did go through that experience means that I've got that lived experience and that empathy for kids who are labelled fussy or for people who, and it's not just kids, you know, adults still have issues with certain foods and they feel uh, a sense, you know, a block or a limitation there. And so I definitely think that one of my kind of, um, jobs that I've set myself is to to help everybody come to it come to it from wherever they are you know meet everybody where they are and to say hey this can be a positive space and I will never shame you or guilt you or tell you that something's good for you which is why you have to eat it it's more like let's pique your curiosity let's connect this to something that you're already interested in whether you're eight or 80 and let's try and find the joy in food. So what actually defines good food for you? Oh, <laughs> what defines it? <laughs> um, good question, because it's not just um, all the things, uh, you know, I was actually for breakfast, we had my zucchini fritters where the, the zucchini came from my in-law's farm. My mother-in-law made the chutney. The kimchi was from Torello Farm, you know, made by Fiona Hammond um, and what else? There was there was one more thing on the table. Oh, and some pickles that my um, father-in-law had made from from gherkins that they'd grown. All of those things are good food, obviously, uh, because they've been grown with love. There's so much kind of connection, and and you know we talk about straight to the source. I mean, talk about from scratch, right? However, I also think sometimes good food is something that might bring up a memory, a positive memory from, from the past for you. So whether that's a really good bag of chips or, you know, like, or, or if it's, um, you know, a particular spread that makes you think right back to when you were five or six and your, you know, grandparents were the ones that were buttering that sandwich and popping the spread on, whatever that looks like to you, good food means something different to different people. Um, and for me, good food means something that makes you feel good. And not just while you're eating it, also, you know, afterwards, because food really does have the capacity to nourish you inside and out. So it's really about throwing out the rule book, isn't it? I think we're yes. so guided by rules. We're so like, this has to be breakfast and that has to be mm. lunch and this is the time you have to eat it. But, you know, it, it is, it's throwing out the rule book and it's just, as you just said, it's thinking, well, it, does it taste good? Do I want to eat it right now? Is it going to nourish me? Mm. So much of what you do is making, you know, food accessible to people and, and trying to break down those barriers. What, what medium do you love being oh. in most? Good question. I think the... It's kind of whichever medium gives me the broadest and biggest impact, so the, the broadest reach and the biggest impact, and it changes. So when I wrote In Praise of Veg, I had no idea the capacity that that book would have to reach people really deeply and on a daily basis. Um, I was just writing 
you know, this book that I thought would be really cool. So I think I find writing difficult in the context of like my mum my would describe me as having ants in my pants, you know, like <laughs> sitting down and writing I find really challenging. But there's something about the power of the, the, the written word, I guess because people are just concentrating solely there that I really enjoy. But in saying that, the same goes for uh, my radio because it's such an oral medium, the same way as podcasts, where people are, it's very intimate and it's just my voice. You know, when you're listening to me and you're hearing my little stutters and sputters and words, I really enjoy doing that. And it is just so like kind of, you know, seat of my pants. The the stuff that I do with ABC Radio nationally, I don't do much prep for that. A lot of that is just autopilot, having a chat with whoever. The broadcast radio on a, on a Saturday Saturday breakfast on ABC Radio Melbourne. I really enjoy the thing that I like about that is kind of how much that stretches my brain because it's not just food. I have to challenge myself across other kind of banks of knowledge. So my mind palace is in a um, what would I call it? It's in a refurbishment phase at the moment <laughs> because I'm just kind of finding new rooms to populate with furniture about frogs and. <laughs> <laughs> about you know, dance battles and that's that's really fun and I'm um, you know the thing that I most enjoy probably beyond all of those is my live stage work let alone you know being on screen the thing that I love about being on stage is that energy exchange between audience and um, the presenter because it's just so immediate and you can see it straight away and when I talked earlier about how you plug me in and you know like re-energize me I could go a whole day and I have gone whole days on stage with chef after chef or you know having conversations and I just love it I love it so much yeah so anything live I guess like yeah the less preparation the better (laughs) <laughs> so you've been supporting and advocating for local producers for mm. for a very, very long time. And now you're wearing a producer hat. You've got yes. your Timami. And oh, so walk God. us walk us through what that's been like. Has that actually given you a different perspective? Oh, has it ever? Tonya, I, I don't like to do things by halves. So I'm just like, you know what? For so long, I've been recommending producers and, and suggesting products to people. And I realized that I could cut out the middleman and make it a much more direct kind of introduction, I suppose, because Tumami is such a produce driven, um, you know, ingredient driven product. It's just two producers, it's just two ingredients. So it's actually like, rather than having these producers of the black garlic and the tomato paste on stage with me, I get to give it to people in their homes, you know, on their shelf, in their fridge, and they get to experience it every day. And I've got a new product um, that I've been working on that'll be out soon. And again, it's about, you know, the producers of of each of those ingredients, The, the appreciation, and I'm sure this will resonate for people listening who produce their own stuff. The appreciation that I have now, a newfound appreciation, is for all of the spot fires and all of the minutiae that you have to think about when you're actually producing something at scale. That's been a very steep learning curve, but I'm very you know, fortunate to have lots of people that I can lean on who have done it before and who have got the experience that I can ask them all of these questions and, and get it right. But it kind of, 
at the moment, it's just a bit of a dabble, a bit of a play, and it's another way that I can continue to do the things that I love to do, which is, you know, connect people with food. And I love, I was chatting with Fran Abdelouie, the food editor at Women's Weekly, and she said to me, so I've never tasted anything like this before. How did you come up with it? And the the real answer is that I was thinking, what do I love to cook with? And that's tomato paste. I add it to anything savoury and anything tomatoey. And then what do I really want to introduce people to? And that's black garlic because I think black garlic is the next um, black truffle, really. I think that it's got that capacity to completely, in like a little tiny package, completely lift, elevate whatever it is that you add it to, savoury-wise, even sweets. And so I thought, well, why not combine the two and and see what happens? And people are into it. So that's really exciting. And you look at the garlic industry in Australia and how it's evolved in the last 20 Mm. years. I mean, you know, supporting those local garlic growers, whether it's in Victoria, New South Wales, Mm -hmm. Tasmania, it's, it's, it's fantastic. That's it, exactly. And, and we've only just started scratching the surface of, of that product. So, and I love garlic, you know, that, that's one just garlic of, of its own volition. I just adore it. So, now, are you able to yeah. give us a little indication of what this next product might be? It's in the Tamami family and it solves a problem because I think whenever you're trying to create something new, you've got to ask yourself, you know, what's already out there and what's not out there and what problem can I solve? And one problem that I've identified as a, as a parent is how much my daughter loves sauce, like she loves, you know, ketchup and loves condiments, uh, but so many of them are full of sugar, sweeteners and salts, exactly. So this one uses um Food, food science, flavor science, you know, goes a little bit McGee with it and creates a sauce that's sugar free and salt free, but still full of flavor and still very Moorish. Brilliant. Well, let us know when you're ready to roll with it and we will, will let people know where to find it. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm assuming from the perspective of distribution, it'll be the same specialty grocers that stock Tumami with, you know, more on the way. <laughs> Look out. Ding. Um, just quickly wanted to jump back to a comment you made when you went through the process of, of creating this product is is the unforeseen process you have to go through when you think, oh, I've got an idea. I might jar it, put it in a bottle, put it on the shelf. And actually just the journey you have to go on to achieve that is really not quite as simple as some people might uh, think. <laughs> and at every single juncture, there are forks in the road where the choice that you makes have knock-on effects to the rest of the production process. So it's just like herding cats sometimes, um, but I guess it's just so rewarding to then have this thing that didn't exist before in your hands. That's very, very cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like you said, it brings a whole new appreciation to those other products oh, you see on the shelf and you, you therefore it. value what you know has really gone into them. That's it. And also I think what's really important to say too is that I don't think, and, and I've really felt this, I don't think that we're in competition with each other. You know, I, making Tumami, I'm not in competition with other small batch producers and condiment makers because actually we're trying to shift the market to think more artisanally, you know, to value that product. And I don't think that them buying Tamami is then going to stop them from buying Black Black Betty Bam or, you know, or mm-hmm. Umite or whatever it is. I actually think that we're all on the same team and that's been really exciting to help amplify each other too. There's a lot of condiment connoisseurs out there. 
That's it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, yeah, Sam from um, uh, Cam from uh, Condimental, he featured, you know, he makes his own condiments in New South Wales and he featured Tumami in his condiment box and that was very cool. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's it's interesting because from a distance, you know, um, we come in and out of each other's lives and we're, and we're watching you with such enthusiasm because you're doing so much positive, you know, so much good and um, encouraging children. I mean, now you're a mom. How has that shifted your mindset from it's one thing to be cooking for adults and, and, and pushing the boundaries, but now you've got a little food critic in your home, don't you? I certainly do, yes, and it has definitely shifted and, and helped me to appreciate some of the nuance that you kind of lose if you're just as, sort of making assumptions. In the last decade, my kind of tolerance and appreciation for people's own proclivities and choices has completely, you know, expanded. So 10 years ago, I would have said bye you know, why aren't you? Why don't you? Why don't they? And it's kind of like, well, because there's a lot going on. And I think the number one thing that I've actually been taught is just to be less judgmental and to offer people the least possible barriers to entry and particularly for parents, because we have no time and no bandwidth to be thinking big. So it's like, what small choices, you know, what what kind of role modeling can I do? So like Hazel, for example, has her own um, Instagram called and Hazel had. And it's very, I mean, talk about artisanal. It's very small batch. You know, she's got less than a thousand followers, but it's all parents who follow her and have followed her journey of eating just from like overhead shots of her learning to eat. And it's kind of been like, um, you know, she started off with chubby starfish hands squeezing broccoli stalks all the way through to now eating with a knife and fork and, um, you know, being a, being very participatory in the, in the cooking of her food as well. Um, and it's a journey and it's kind of like the less attached you are to them putting it in their mouths, the more likely it is that they'll give it a go and the closer that it is that we eat to what she's eating, which is exactly the same because sometimes she'll test us. She'll be like, you know, let's swap plates. <laughs> So we have to, yes, they're sneaky. Yeah, but not even sneaky. It's just curiosity. You know, we've cultivated that. So I wrote an article when I was sort of seven months, eight months pregnant um, for uh, Good Food. It was like the cover article um, about lunchboxes. And what I had set out to write, which was kind of like tips, you know, Arden had set me this challenge of can you write tips for parents for lunchbox success? And I started out writing, you know, about, here's how you shape your sushi and here's how you your bento. And then I started speaking with the experts and they were kind of like, you need to pair it right back and say that it's just one meal in the day and, you know, the less we kind of put pressure on ourselves, the better. And giving people permission to do less actually encourages them to do more. So I think that's been the biggest learning and I see that for myself. So I'll watch somebody now saying, you know, it's as easy as that. And I'll go, is it though? <laughs> Yeah, I used to channel some of that lunchbox guilt. I used to read articles oh. like that thinking, why don't my lunchboxes look like that and why do they come back uneaten? And I think as long as soon as you let go of that and you think it is one meal and actually yes. it's just really important that your child eats and enjoys mm -hmm. it, yep. <laughs> that changes the whole perspective on, you know, what goes into that lunchbox, as you just said. Correct, Mundo. 
uh, phenomenon we'd love to just chat to you about quickly because that was an amazing project in really, as we said earlier, culinary literacy for children mm. um, because it, it really does, it has to start at an early age, isn't it? That's when these habits and learnings and it, it are, are really embedded in us. Mm. Um, and so that was an incredible project that you embarked on. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Thank you. Well, I mentioned that whenever I embark on something new, I ask myself what problems I can solve and, you know, what's the win-win here? What's the Venn diagram of winning? This was a project that was funded and continues to receive kind of ad hoc funding from Hort Innovation, who are the grower-owned not-for-profit research and development or uh, corporation that look after fresh produce growers around Australia, who I'm sure, well, you've worked with as well. So Hort, as well as government funding, kind of, you know, the challenge was, the gauntlet that was thrown down was how do you make vegetables cool for kids? And so the problems that I solved were um, obviously, you know, what's one place that kids are spending eight hours a day where they are more engaged and spongy than if I tried to give them a pamphlet at the dinner table, it's at school. So the project is um, a completely free digital toolkit of video and podcast and uh, resources, lesson plans, all curriculum aligned, all available online. There's even like a movement map uh, or like a movement wheel now that we've created where the kids can kind of do moves around different fruits and vegetables just to familiarize them. So like the problem number one, what we know about kids is that exposure increases likelihood of them trying something new. But the problem is that parents aren't necessarily going to commit to buying five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different fruits and vegetables a week in order to up that exposure level. But exposure doesn't have to mean that you have to eat it. So those resources in the classroom, every time that they see an onion or a mushroom, they're starting to think, oh, okay, well, that's that's interesting. That's different to what I expected. And it's not about the nutritional benefits. It's more like, did you know that there's a certain mushroom that can be uh, worn as a hat and there's another kind of mushroom that, you know, can actually, it's flammable. So you can use it like a torch in the dark. You know, that's kids love that stuff. And for the teacher side, the big problem for teachers is trying to find engaging resources that are curriculum aligned and also free. And so solving that problem has been a big kind of tick for us. And it's being used by thousands of you know schools across. It's on ClickView. It's on uh, soon to be on ABC Education. It's when people are flying again, it's on Qantas. So the videos, people, you know, kids can watch the videos on Qantas. So the, the, the thing, again, is that phenomenon is all about reach and all about problem solving. And ultimately, it's also really fun. And we've got some new podcast episodes and resources coming out um, around Easter time to help kids kind of, you know, give, give teachers some more resources and reinvigorate and, and help kids fall in love with onions this time. <laughs> That's brilliant. And spe- <laughs> speaking of onions, we've got a yes. few tours to a few onion farms coming up, oh, so we must oh. um, fill you in on those. <laughs> Please do. I remember when, I, when we visited, um, we visited the Shadbolts in, um, uh, in, you know, uh, in Victoria and they have, uh, it was onion harvest and it smelt like onion soup, the whole space. So if you're listening to this and you're potentially going on a straight to the source onion tour, I would highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And you said April, around Easter time? Yes, around Easter time. Brilliant. Soon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think we're um, we're about ready to wrap her up. Is ah, there, um, put a bow on is it. Is there anything you want to ask us? 
or add, or add to what, <laughs> or we've, add to what we've or anything we've missed? Uh, look, I I think um, no, I think I think you've covered some really great stuff, and the thing that I'm really heartened by and buoyed by is the fact that this pandemic has forced us all to be more creative as people, as um, you know, professionals, and as cooks and eaters so as far as what the future looks like um I, I think the future is bright and um i think if we all kind of think about the fact that a rising tide raises all ships and support each other no matter what point at the food chain we are on what link we are we'll have a much better time wonderful well alice one last one last quick question before we wrap up <laughs> Who do you? Who would you like us to have on the Straight to the Source oh, podcast? If, gosh, who would you um, like to hear from? Who would you like who? to hear from? Well, I'm sure that you've got. Um, I'm sure you've got lots of really cool people coming on. But you know who hasn't had a chat for a while, and I, I never, I never tire of hearing. I'll tell you. So when I was at university, so this would have been a very long time ago. I heard Ulla Wolf-Tasker talking about food you know, and fresh ingredients uh, and uh, the, there was a competition going. It was Red Simons and, and the competition was that you could win a tour of Queen Vic Market with Ulla Wolf-Tasker and Red Simons and it was when smartphones were just coming in and they wanted you to send in a photo of your best breakfast and I sent in a photo of a breakfast um, and was really hopeful that I'd win and I won. I was one of the people on the tour. It was me and a bunch of other ABC Radio Melbourne listeners. This was 2000, and I want to say it was 2008. And what was your breakfast? My breakfast was French toast. It was like French toast with berries. I was, you know, shot on a Nokia 3210. Uh, <laughs> but I was just, everybody else wanted to hang out with Red Simons, but I was just riveted by what Allah was saying. We were talking potatoes. We were talking, you know, she was picking up stuff and talking me through it. And I will never tire the amount of times that I've spoken with her over the years. You know, she's a really dear person to to me and to our family and to the industry. So I hope that you've got a chat with Allah on your <laughs> schedule. She is most certainly a shining light for the industry. I mean, what she has done for it in terms of regional food and destinations and just really, you know, keeping people focused on the fact that it's the producers we rely on to mm. put that food on our plate. Um, yeah, she's she's an absolute legend and um, we definitely have her on our list. So we will <laughs> let you know when she's coming on. I will be tuning in. <laughs> Well, thank you, beautiful friend. Thank you, thank you. It's been really wonderful to chat to you, especially in amongst your very busy schedule. So it's uh, you know, it's funny that you say you were one of the winners of that ABC radio competition and now you're the host of one of their shows. <laughs> so isn't that incredible how, you know, things evolve and congratulations oh. on everything you're doing. We absolutely love it and we've loved chatting to you today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Back at you.